Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's 1939, and southern men were idiots, and women wore dresses made of curtains. The movie, Gone with the Wind. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and I am a Clippers fan who is oh, so happy um, to just talk to my pal Amy about what just happened in the last week. If you don't follow basketball, Kawhi Leonard is now part of the Clippers organization. and, and No Lakers- coffee for that man at certain establishments oh, in worst. L.A. Amy, I did not realize that Laker fans are so angry. I've gotten into more... Uh, fights on Twitter with Laker fans because I am a Clippers fan and they're so envious. We got Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I can't believe it. Wait, we got Anthony Davis. So if you want to start a civil war, Mm -hmm. I guess this is the chance. All right, this is it. We will see how this all plays out over the course of a season, Amy. I'm very excited. Hey, by the way, um, if you're in LA, Amy and I are going to be uh, doing a show at the Alamo Draft House this August. Uh, it's going to be celebrating stunts and action sequences in movies. Uh, we'll have a little bit more information soon, but you can go to the Alamo LA uh, on Monday to get tickets for our first live show. It's exciting. I know. I'm so glad that Alamo is finally reopening here. Reopening. Opening for the first time. It's opening be, here. I love I it. I am excited. I cannot wait. And Amy... We're going to be talking about a great American film, Gone with the Wind. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about uh, people's reactions to Deer Hunter, which um, were surprisingly very much in our camp. People were uh, very supportive of our take on Deer Hunter. Yeah, over on the Facebook page, I think the majority of unspooled people on the Facebook page agreed to vote off Deer Hunter from the list. Wow. And, you know, I looked at a great thing that uh, a guy on Twitter, Sean Derman, sent me from William Goldman's book, and he compared the Deer Hunter to a comic book movie and kind of broke it down in a very interesting way. And I put that up on our Twitter so you can check that out and see how he showed the parallels there. You know, my friend 
Austin Vesley. He is a uh, a great director. Uh, we directed a movie that I was in called Slice with Chance the Rapper. He also directed some amazing uh, music videos with Chance. Uh, just an all-around super talented dude. He even directed your buddy LeBron, uh, his barbershop uh, show on HBO, wrote in uh, in defense of Deer Hunter. And he goes, you know, I liked it for the immersive quality of that runtime. Mundanity leads to abject horror, leads to a new skewed mundanity. Like, it's not about roulette, but that feeling that the war is going to get you even when it's over. The game is in you now. And 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 listening to that point of view, I, I like that. I like that argument. I, I'm, not, I'm not hating that. Uh, I just feel like it's tone. It's a tone piece. It doesn't, I don't know if that's interesting cinematically. I think that that's maybe a better book. Actually, you know what's so interesting is I was uh, rewatching Boogie Nights recently. Mm-hmm. And you know how in Boogie Nights everything goes to hell when, in like the 80s? Yeah. There's a scene in Boogie Nights where um, they're playing Russian roulette really, really, really brief, briefly. And I was thinking like, oh, this would stack up with the time that when Deer Hunter was on oh, TV wow. all the time. Oh, wow. So funny. Like, da, da, da. Layers upon Anderson. layers. Genius. Genius. Well, what do you think about what Ryan Tyler Thomas said on Twitter, he said that of all the things he's heard on Unspooled, the most shocking thing is that both Amy and Roger Ebert both compared House Party is a classic film. He said that's the most surprising thing. I think if anybody has watched House Party, they know that it's not surprising at all. It I, is phenomenal. I love it. I work with Reggie Hudland uh, a handful of times, and he is a genius, and uh, I totally agree. It kind of breaks my heart that Kid didn't have the acting career that I thought Kid should have had. That Chris Reed didn't have more of a career. You know, mm. did I talk about House Party 2 on that episode and how House Party 2 was like kind of stretching him and his acting talents, but in the service of a much weaker film, that it's all about the tragedy of Kid? So basically, if he had a better film, people would have recognized him and he could have maybe, you know, could have been seen for what he is. Maybe. I mean, House Party 2 is all about making Kid cry a lot and mm-hmm. like having him lose everything and you know, sad. And then there's a pajama jammy jam and it's all fine. I worked but it was with, like trying to show that he could be a dramatic actor in a weird way. I worked with Chris Reed on a, uh, a never aired, uh, series, a prank series. And he was a lovely, lovely, lovely dude. Um, and, and by the way, kept the prank going for 15 hours in one day. And that was a big deal. He was great. Uh, that was a make my day. You'll never see it. Um, and we shot eight episodes of it. Um, Ben Maddox writes here, I love Unspooled, but I do disagree with their thesis on the Deer Hunter episode that you have to have been there to tell a story. I do, on the other hand, agree that Deer Hunter isn't very good. Um, you know, just to kind of correct that, I don't think you have to have been there, but I think- They're what, meeting Vietnam. Vietnam, right. Um, like, I think what I think what I find interesting is like, it's dudes who wanted to be there kind of romanticize. Like, it's like, it's doing the work without the research. And I think- there's an issue with that. There's a problem with like romanticizing something, which actually will come into play a little bit later in today's episode of uh, Gone with the Wind. And exactly. I just want to flag yeah. the idea that this is a story told by people who are like, oh man, it could have been awesome. Yes. Just like Apocalypse Now. Like, I think you can put yourself in the mindset, but I don't think these people were putting themselves completely in the mindset. They were coming up with a mindset they wanted to be true. It was kind of more like the cowboy and Indians mindset. You know, that's what I would say. Um, You know, speaking of Gone with the Wind, which we're going to be talking about in a second, we had you all call in and uh, give us your best, frankly, my blanks. So you could say whatever your blanks are. We'll see what they would be funny. It's like match game. Um, So uh, let's hear some frankly my blanks. Frankly, my dear, I just don't give a fuck. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a badger. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a rat's ass what you say. Frankly, my dear, 
I don't give a damn, Daniel. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a ham sandwich. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a penny. Take a penny. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a dick cheese. There had to be a dick cheese, didn't there? I was so happy. We've been really remiss. I I thought for sure we're going to hear dick cheese and Gone with the Wind. Um, I was really hoping for it. All right, Amy, let's get into it. All right. The year is 1939. Girl Scouts release their first Thin Mint Cookie. Glamour publishes its first magazine. And NBC broadcasts its first black and white television images. New York Yankees maintain their four-year streak as winners of the World Series. Adolf Hitler is nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And the UK loans its copy of the Magna Carta to the US for safekeeping during World War II. The world's population is under 2.5 billion compared to today's 7.7 billion. Hot fads include goldfish swallowing And the British government issues its morale posters, urging citizens to keep calm and carry on. Big movies of the year are Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, and today's film, Gone with the Wind. It ranks number six on the 2007 AFI list, having slipped slightly from its fourth spot in 1997. So, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Gone with the Wind. It is the book that... Producer David O. Selznick called America's Bible for reasons that we'll get into later on in the show. Um, massive, 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 massive bestseller by the author Margaret Mitchell turned into this massive, 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 massive box office hit starring Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, the woman from the South who gets married three times, gets widowed many, many, many times, who fights for Tara, who fights for her family, who mostly fights for herself. She is, I would say, the ultimate problematic fave. Mm -hmm. I love her and hate her and love her and hate her. And among the other people who love her and hate her are Clark Gable as Rhett Butler, Hattie McDaniel as Mammy, Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes, and Olivia de Havilland as Melanie Hamilton. This is the biggest film we have done. And I would say that in the length. And I also would say that in its cultural relevance, uh, for better or for worse, this movie is, you know, very much an iconic American film, unlike any other one that we've really done. Would you agree with that? I mean, yeah, maybe. Like, I would say that this movie has so many massive parallels to the things that have come later that have been the biggest and biggest and biggest. I mean, right. Titanic, of course, Lord of the Rings. I think there's a lot of similarities here, like an upstart production company in indie taking on a massive bestseller and saying, like, we're going to make this because the studios don't dare. Yeah, and I think part of the challenge of production in this movie was how do you take this book that's beloved and giant and make it into something that is palatable and cinematic? I mean, the original cut of this movie is 4.5 hours. It's now cut down to a brisk three hours and 42 minutes. Um, And... It seems like it was really a photocopied version of the book. They didn't really do a lot of giant changes. I mean, a lot of the dialogue in this film is right out of the book. I mean, there is a lot of debate over who wrote this and how they did it, but it's a very faithful adaptation. Yeah, I mean, what makes Gone with the Wind unique among most of the films we've talked about on this list is that, you know, I think the list does tend to gravitate towards auteurs, filmmakers. Like, oh, it's a Hitchcock movie, and oh, this is definitely a Kubrick movie. But Gone with the Wind is a producer's movie, you know? Yes. This is David O. Selznick's movie, a movie that had anywhere from, you can count it, between two and five directors, depending on what you count as a director. Mm -hmm. Like, is it somebody who takes over for a couple days when Victor Fleming has, like, 
a freak out and collapses of exhaustion, <laughs> kind of. It's a movie that has one credited screenwriter, but maybe as many as 15 screenwriters, including F. Scott Fitzgerald. But behind it all, you have David O. Selznick, head of Selznick International Pictures, who also happens to be married to Louis B. Mayer's daughter. Um, a marriage that I've heard is like, ah, eh, eh, <laughs> see. Um, and yet, like, he puts this together with this grand theory of kind of based on what you're saying. He's like, you make gigantic cuts. You cut out like two of Scarlett's three children. Right. You're like, ah, they didn't exist. Because you're like, audiences will forgive us if we get rid of major things. But I'm going to keep all the little stuff exactly right. He's right. Because in everything that I've read, all the people who love the books love the film because they feel like it is a true adaptation. But I agree with what you said earlier, which is this is a producer's film. And it feels like a producer's film. It feels like it's checking boxes a lot of the time. Now, this is a film that I enjoyed. I I legitimately sat back, did not want to watch it, knew it was almost four hours, like, oh God, and found myself totally caught up in the film. But afterwards, it left me with this kind of vacant feeling. And I think that when you talk about spectacle in these big films, like we mentioned, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings, and we've talked about Titanic in the past, the auteur is behind that. You feel this director, the singular vision. Here, we're talking about a movie that has five directors, multiple screenwriters. It's kind of this uh, night at the opera, everyone into the stateroom approach of filmmaking. And I think that that makes a very um, impressive film, but... I think there are things at the end of it where you're like, okay, what, what like rings true? Like what is, what are we taking away? Like, is the writing that great? I don't think the writing is that great. Are the performances that great? I think that the two leads, uh, you know, Clark Gable and, and Vivian Lee, they're very good. It's visually interesting, but it's directed by the same guy who directed Wizard of Oz. I don't know if it's as good as Wizard of Oz visually. When I was watching it, I enjoyed it. But when I walked away, I had that avatar feeling. It was like, oh, right. Yeah, that existed. Okay, well, tell you what. Then I'm going to lay my cards on the table. You ready for this? Yes. Here we go. First, I think Gone with the Wind was maybe one of the first films I saw in the theater. Okay. Because, like, I I love this movie deeply. My roots with this movie go very, 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 very mm-hmm. far back. My parents' story is that they took me to see this when I was young. And I do remember this moment of leaving the theater and them saying, what did you think? And I said, I liked the first movie a lot better than the second movie because I didn't realize they right. were two different movies because we had the intermission in the middle. By the way, you're already a critic and kind of nailing it. Well, a lot of people's <laughs> complaints about this film. <laughs> I, know, I just remember as a kid being like, I liked all the pretty dresses. Why'd the little girl have to die on the horse? Mm-hmm. I loved horses already too. So I think I was identifying too much with Bonnie. Now I'm like, Bonnie the kid kind of sucks. She can die. Second off, I disagree. I think this movie is maybe like the best example of why the auteur theory is overrated. Because really? like you do have all these people in this kitchen and what you wind up with is a complete beautiful recipe. You know how you have a bite of a meal that you love and you're like, oh yeah, there's like the richness of the fat and like the tang of the salt and like, oh, a little bit of spice here, all these different flavors. That's what you get in A Gone with the Wind. You get like Victor Fleming, you know, this like macho dude is like blah, 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 blah. Like hates Scarlett O'Hara, kind of a dick to like this whole character right. the whole way through. Adds this, like, testosterone to it. Uh, compared with, like, Kukor, who loved women, loved female stories, was, like, trying to do all the sensitive stuff, who, like, directed a lot of, like, the most emotional beats, and who Vivian Lee and uh, Olivia de Havilland would go, like, and secretly meet with on the weekends I to heard talk about, about their characters with, because, like, he understood how to make it intimate. You have a movie that balances the grand and the intimate in a way that's, like, the best bite of, like, the most delicious casserole. I Now I'm stumbling on the word casserole because I'm no. like, I've never heard of a delicious casserole, but I'm sure they exist. They're probably French and that's what this is, except it's American. You know, um, I hear your passion and I really get it. And here's what I'll say. I enjoyed watching this movie. I think where I have 
kind of had issues with it is in thinking about it from a lot of different perspectives, right? Because it's maybe we should save the social part of this for the later part of the podcast, because I think right now let's talk about it just from a acting spectacle point of view, because I think it's the only way for me to kind of balance my thoughts on it. Like there are things about this movie that are immediately engaging. You're totally right. But it felt to me like a soap opera. Like there are some beautiful shots. I think there's some beautifully composed shots. I mean, you know, Rhett and Scarlet under that tree and you see that image and silhouette is, is gorgeous. There's a lot of little moments here, but you know, here's a thing where they asked Hitchcock, hey, can you talk to us about how to stage the scene when all the men go to confront uh, the uh, the carpetbaggers who, you know, attack Scarlet by the bridge? And, you know, Hitchcock wrote all these notes and all these camera moves. And he's like, eh, threw it out the window. They're like, no, we don't need that. Like, you know, it's like in better hands, I could imagine this being a much more consistent film. Okay, first off. Yeah. I think the scene where the men go off to like fight and burn down the group of people that who like who attacked Scarlett O'Hara, I think that's incredibly tense, especially because like it does the genius thing of Scarlett doesn't know what's happening because mm-hmm. everybody else has hid it from her. And so you see her be like super confused while everybody else is angry and glaring at her and there's this tension and you don't even know what it is. I love that. I love that like we pick up on everything so much later and that this movie plays a trick on you. You're like, what am I nervous about? Am I nervous that they're going to get caught? Okay, they're home. They didn't get caught. Oh, no, wait. Ashley was actually shot. And then it goes through the whole thing of Ashley being shot. And oh, no, there really was tragedy. And then the ultimate sucker punch, Scarlett O'Hara then suddenly being like, oh, yeah, my husband, he's dead? Like, that comes later. It's like this evil kicker. This movie is playing tricks on you in so many Mm. wonderful ways. But don't you think, and maybe this is what the root of my complaint is, it's done in a very soapy way. Yes, you have all those elements. If you watch General Hospital and All My Children, you have all that tension and all these reveals and all these twists. I mean, you know, when she falls down the stairs, I mean, can we even talk about that? I mean, it's like, you know, of, oh, of course, she's going to have a miscarriage. Like they have a fight, she blah, 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 falls down the stairs. Like it's very, very, very soapy. Is there a difference between the way that soap operas do twists and drama and intense camera pushing in, because we're still doing that same camera technique pushing in, versus, you know, maybe a more deft hand at drama? Like, I, I think we can go back to Sophie's Choice, which I consider a very melodramatic film. And I think that the drama there is a lot more, um, you know, artistic. It, it, it just feels like the movie is just basically burning out twists every couple of minutes. And, and it just felt soap opera-y to me. I don't think so at all. Okay. I mean, I think to see it that way means like neglecting all of the inner glue, all the actual right. agony that's really happening. I mean, the the drama in the scene where Scarlett tumbles down the stairs isn't that she has like a miscarriage and that he doesn't know. It's like watching these two people who should be able to work it out, who could be the only other person right for each other, not be able to talk, not be able to communicate. To watch these two people just like keep butting their heads like against each other. I find it just so heartbreaking. I mean, to me, what I think makes this movie incredibly special is this is like, okay, I'll start, I'll say it this way. Gone with the Wind is the closest I can get to kind of appreciating why some people like Taxi Driver. I mean, the way that people talk about like Travis Bickle, sort of the push-pull, like the kind of repellent attraction to him, like their desire to figure him out. I don't really have that much curiosity for him. I don't really care about figuring him out. I'm sort of like, whatever. But Scarlett O'Hara is this maddening character. We don't really get that many characters like this who are women who make 
all of these hot-headed, horrible choices. Women who are, like, so modern. I think that the Scarlett O'Hara character is just this woman out of time. She's not a role model by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I could never be like, Scarlett O'Hara, I want to be just like her. I want to, like, steal my sister's boyfriend and marry all these men that I don't love and, like, be incredibly selfish and always be my own worst enemy. She's not a heroine, and yet what this movie does, what the book does, is this weird, fascinating pull of making you care about her so much anyways. And it's this idea of a character that you love despite your best intentions, that you want good things for despite the fact that she doesn't even deserve them, that you want her to wind up with Red, even though they probably should never really wind up together. Why? They should! She's a dummy! She's like, go after this guy, Ashley? What's appealing about Ashley at all? She's not a dummy. She goes after Ashley because he's the one thing she can't win. She's won every single man, so it's Mm. like the one man that she can't win, that's what she's got to do because if there's one thing about Scarlett O'Hara, she's a competitive fighter. She cannot lose. I think she, she's an entitled, she an entitled rich snob who is like, I'll never go hungry again as long as I have slaves working for me. Yeah, that's why you won't go hungry. Like they show her constantly picking herself up by her bootstraps, but not acknowledging that she has a full infrastructure around her. She can't lose Tara. She can't do it. Like she's like basically to me, it's like watching like a Kardashian be like, no, I'm so mad. The world's against me. Anyway, I can go back to my house and stretch out. Like, I mean, she's got like, she doesn't go back to her house to stretch out. She is also in the field. She's covered in sweat. She's doing everything as well. And, but also the beauty of this movie is that you're not wrong. Every insult you just threw at her is also true. And I don't think there's been a character as fascinating and repellent as her, which is why I I think this movie still really holds up. The thing that the movie does interestingly is you could look at her and go like, oh, she is this badass. I mean, she is, you know, she's marrying the head of the, you know, supply store. She's working a room, getting all those men to like basically stand around her and, you know, get her cake. And she is in many respects like, I'm bucking the system, but she's a part of the system. It's a it's a tricky character because I think in a way you could look at this movie and go, oh, she's a feminist, like a straight up feminist. And we don't have that in these films. But then you look at it again, you're like, but is she? I think she's just like a spoiled, entitled rich girl. Maybe that's that dichotomy is what you're talking about, which is interesting. But I also think it's a little bit like it's like a story told by a rich person about how hard it is to be a rich person. You know what I'm saying? Kind of, but I think what you have to do is you have to put Scarlet in this, like, time, you okay. know? yeah. Because I do feel like she's in a lot of ways like a character who pops out of time, you know? And there's no mistaking that when Margaret Mitchell wrote her, like, Margaret Mitchell is writing this book in, like, the early 30s, and Margaret Mitchell is writing it, you know, as a person who had been a Southern debutante herself. Right. And when she did her big, like, introduction to society, she performed this thing called what they call the, quote, Apache dance. Mm-hmm. And it was apparently so scandalous that the women of the Junior League were like, you're never invited to join the Junior League. And Margaret Mitchell sort of kicked out of, like, her Southern world. Right. And then decided to, like, spend the rest of her life trying to work her way back in, trying to sort of apologize, but also being like, these women are kind of stupid. Like, Margaret Mitchell had this whole push-pull relationship with the rules of the South, the rules of the women, like, like in here you have Aunt Pity Pat, you know, Mm -hmm. or also Mammy, who are like, this is how you behave, this is how you act, this is what you're supposed to do, you don't eat, you don't show bosom, you don't act like this, you're supposed to wear black. Like, Aunt Pity Pat has the same reaction to Scarlett O'Hara dancing at, like, in her widow's dress, as Aunt Pity Pat does to, like, 
the North literally burning down her town. They're <laughs> equal to Aunt Pity Pat. Right. And this is the world in which Scarlett O'Hara is rebelling against. It's really a lot of pressure she's under. I totally hear that, but I would take away the, the pressure part because I would say it's like it's conceited. It's sort of like, look, she lied, told this guy that she wants to marry him just to get the jealousy of this guy who's a, a nothing burger. Ashley, pfft, that's what I say about Ashley. God, who cares? This is, we basically set up a family who they marry their inbreds. They marry their cousins. She's like, ooh, I gotta get with him. I gotta get in that family. Anyway, I actually like Ashley's wife a lot. Uh, I, I thought her performance actually really beautiful and you're also saying that because Olivia de Havilland is still alive at 103 and can hear you I well by the way I would love to have her on the show let's get her on the show let's bring her down to the podcast make her walk here we won't even pay for a lift and we'll make her talk about it no um she is is fantastic in the film I just feel like you know so she does this thing she acts like she's petulant so she marries this guy out of spite and then he dies and I guess what I'm saying is if she married somebody she loved and then wanted to dance, it would be like bucking the system. But she married someone she didn't love. He gets killed. She doesn't care. And she wants to dance. That's not bucking the system. It's just sort of like her having, it's it's like her character is shit. It's like, well, like, it's like you're not rebelling. You didn't care. You know, she's like. Okay, she doesn't care, but the society around her wants her to care. She's she doesn't shitty. care. She's very shitty. She does not love this man at all. Yes. But wouldn't it be better if she did love a man, but she's like, I do want to dance. I don't want to be a widow anymore. That's a more compelling story. No, because then the this movie would be easy because then it would easily let us have sympathy for her. This movie doesn't let us have sympathy for her. And that's but I why think it's it so does. Wonderful. I it think it creates it a thing. It doesn't really. Because like, I think people watch it and they go, let her dance. Just let her dance with Rhett. And then you think about it, you're like, this is insane. Why do I care? She doesn't, she's not even upset. She's not even mourning. She's forced mourning. And so you're in this like constant battle. Cause I, I, it's the constant battle. That's interesting. Yeah. You're being a little Ann pity pat here. I, you know what? I think what I'm feeling is I feel tricked by the movie because I'm like, I'm emotionally manipulated by the moves. And then when I think about them, I go, but this is all bullshit. Like she has created all of this. It takes her the whole movie to basically go like, you know what, Rhett, I do love you. Like what? There's a real dichotomy to her where it's like, yeah, these people who are forced to be like prison labor, that's bad. But these slaves I have working for me that are, you know, <laughs> she'll never go hungry again. What about the, the slaves? She's not like treating them any better. Wait, she has no problem with prison labor. She doesn't care. In fact, I even pulled that clip all because right. I think it's really interesting. Darling, I don't like to interfere, but... I do wish you'd let me hire free darkies instead of using convicts. I believe we could do better. Darkies, but their pay would break us, and convicts are dirt cheap, and if we just give Galga a free hand, a he free could... free hand? You know what that means. He'll starve them and whip them. Didn't you see them? Some of them are sick, underfed. Oh, Ashley, how you do run on? If I let you alone, you'll be giving them chicken three times a day and tucking them to sleep with eider-down quilts. Scarlet, I will not make money out of the enforced labor and misery of others. You weren't so particular about owning slaves. Well, that was different. We didn't treat them that way. Besides, I'd have freed them all when Father died, if the war hadn't already freed them. Oh, I'm sorry, Ashley. But have you forgotten what it's like without money? I found out that money is the most important thing in the world, and I don't intend ever to be without it again. I'm going to make money enough so the Yankees can never take Tara away from me. I'm going to make it the only way I know how. I mean, this is why I think the movie right. has such this toxic, wonderful hold on us, is because, you know, 40 minutes before, she's eating a turnip from the dirt, and saying, I will never go hungry again. And you're saying, 
yes, I want that for you. I am on your side. Right. And this movie knows that she's wrong here. It knows it. And it knows that Ashley being like, I would have let him go. He's also not like that innocent either. And so this movie is playing with our, our like conception of the South. I think that's why this film is so fantastic. I, because I don't think it gives us an easy answer. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Gone with the Wind is for better and worse and very much worse and very much better. I think one of the best representations of us as a country wrestling with the Civil War and wrestling with the South. I did a lot of reading before I came to this. Like I read a biography of Margaret Rutten Mitchell to try to really understand. Because I know that I love this movie from my superficial just like childhood of loving yeah. this movie. But I really want to understand like the hold that this movie has on me, you know, and I really want to try to like go back and wrestle with it. Like, why do I still love this movie when, like, Birth of a Nation can kind of go suck a dick? And yet, Margaret Mitchell really looked up to D.W. Griffith and looked up to that film. And when you talked about Gone with the Wind in 1939, you couldn't talk about it without saying, like, hey, it's the biggest hit since Birth of a Nation, another film about the South. One of the things that I kind of found really interesting in my reading was how Americans felt about the South back then in 1939, which was different than how we feel about it now. What I didn't really realize that helped me put this whole, like, Southern celebration into context was how much guilt the people of the North felt about the South. Mm. And by that, I kind of, what I mean is, like... Winner's guilt? Winner's guilt, yes. But also, let's be honest, like, everything that the North has, you know, their big factories, all the money that they made, a lot of it was made because they benefited from slavery in the South. Mm -hmm. You know, they happened to live in the North, they didn't happen to own the slaves, but they profited from it. You know, the South had always made, like, 65 cents to the dollar for every Northerner. But after the war, I made like 39 cents to the dollar for every Northerner. And I think that the North had a really hard time kind of dealing with that. I think they felt sort of implicated in that. And I think there really was this push to make it okay, you know, to try to be like, everything is all right. Because this, you know, is a period where they were hopeful that maybe there was some sort of like, you know what, let's give a little bit, let's be a little generous because we did really, really, really stomp on them even though deserve it in our modern eye, and especially like in our modern, modern, modern eye, when we see that like the worst parts of the South didn't go away and that movies like Gone with the Wind ended up mutating into sort of this celebration and this kind of vindication that was more of a reconciliation than maybe the South deserved. It's an interesting point of view, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think, you know, when you look at Birth of a Nation and this, and I'm talking a little bit out of my ass, so correct me if I'm wrong, I think why... Birth of the Nation is off the list, besides the the societal issues, is because the narrative there is not necessarily compelling. This sucks you in. And I think it creates this drama, this soap opera, this, you know, this engaging thing, which I was totally brought into. And it starts to warp your perception of the culture. And that is, I think, a dangerous thing because what we're doing is we're showing a side that is not necessarily the right side. So you go, oh, they did treat their slaves well. Every slave that you see, you know, there's that moment. It's quitting time. All right, guys, let's go. You know, there's no slave master. It's just like, there's just a bunch of slaves in the field. Like, all right, we're done. We're creating these things that give everybody a pass. And I think that that's a little bit of a dangerous thing about it because you are emotionally committed to it. It's like, I like this character. I like this story. But at the root of it, if you took away everything and you look at like the root of what they're saying, like, you know, Birth of a Nation and this share similar points of view. It's just that you're more emotionally connected to this film because of the characters 
that are in it. Does that make sense? I think yes and no. Okay. You know, like, I'm with you on a lot of that. Like, one, to me, one of the worst moments in the movie is, like, when Atlanta's being destroyed. And then Scarlet runs into one of her former slaves, Big Sam. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's listen to that conversation. Big Sam! Big Sam! Oh, mighty boys. This must come. Big Sam! I'm so glad to see you. Tell me about Tara, about my mother. She didn't write me. She gone got sick, Miss Scarlett. See? Just a little bit sick. That's all, Miss Scarlett. Your pa, he just wow when we let him fight on County's broken knee. And he had fits when they tuck all us field hands to dig the ditch for the white soldiers to hide in. But Jamal said the Confederates need it. So we's going to dig for the south. Sam, was there a doctor? Sorry, man, we've got to march. Goodbye, Miss Scarlett. Don't worry. We'll stop them Yankees. Goodbye, Big Sam. Goodbye, boys. Plenty of you get sick ahead. Let me know. Bye, Miss Scarlett. Goodbye. I mean, the things in there that make it complicated is like Scarlet clearly clearly cares about him, but Big Sam is like, I'm happy to help the Confederates right. fight the Yankees, and you're like, okay, right. you know. And so I wrestle with that. I've wrestled so much with the character of Prissy, you know, played by Butterfly McQueen, yeah. who's played as just like dumb, maybe mentally handicapped. Um, she lies. She is completely helpless. But then I really, 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 really also was looking at this whole scene where Scarlett has sent Prissy out to go find the doctor so she can help Melanie give birth. Really listen to this whole arc. It's a little bit of a long clip because it starts with Prissy singing and it ends with Prissy singing. Oh, Melly, I just go and fetch you some cool water. You're as slow as molasses in January. And where's Dr. Mead? I never seen him, Miss Scarlett. What? No, he ain't at the hospital. A man, he told me that the doctor's down at the car shed with the wounded soldiers. Well, why didn't you go after him? Miss Scarlett, I was scared to go down there at the car shed. There's folks dying down there, and I'm scared of dead folks. <laughs> oh, you go sit by Miss Melly. And don't you be upsetting her while we're gonna hide off you. What's so interesting about that scene is when you realize that Prissy is singing before and after, you realize that whole middle part with Scarlett, she's lying. She just doesn't want to help. Right. And like, that's fascinating to me because honestly, I think Prissy and Scarlett are the two most similar characters in the whole movie. They're manipulating each other to get to get the, what they want. And I think Prissy is putting on an act that she knows will work on Scarlett. And like, it's complicated to me. I Well, let me, can I, because there's a couple of things I want to talk about. First of all, just to let you know that actually one of the titles, uh, one of the titles that Margaret uh, Mitchell considered for the book was Tote the Weary Load. Uh, but about this performance, like you just said before, you know, with with her character there, you don't know, is, is she dumb? Is she not? And, it, and I think if we're going with the read that she's just, you know, kind of a, a child, that's how I kind of read her. And, you know, she feels to me like somebody who you could have that conversation. She forgets it in five minutes. You know, she just, you never see that glimmer, I guess. And and I think your reading of it makes it a lot more interesting. I mean, this is also a character that Malcolm X literally said, like, when I saw her perform, I wanted to crawl under a carpet. You know, so it's... It's true. And I do have to be, like, full on honest and say that this character, Butterfly McQueen said it basically ruined her for acting. Like, right. she hated playing this character. She hated being this character. She ended up getting, like, I think, uh, a, a 
degree in political science afterwards. Wow. She was like, I'm over this. That's kind of so fascinating. And what, what's so interesting about this movie is you have a movie where this is the first black actress to win an Academy Award, right? But the Academy Awards are segregated. You know, it's a movie that is huge. But at the premiere, they don't let, you know, Hattie McDaniel sit near the cast. And like, you know, and then Clark Gable's like, well, I won't go. And they convince him to go. It's So you have this like, push-pull even in society. But I also go, well, this is the same year that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington comes out, and it's making this indictment of politics and people in power, and yet we're trying to give this movie a pass. I'm going, well, we don't have to do that here. Like, cause it's, not like we're, it's not like we're not at that point in our culture to point uh, a lens at this and kind of say like, yes, Margaret Mitchell's book is here, but maybe we can open this up and actually have a point of view about this that's just not repeating what, I think this is a Southerner's point of view of the Civil War. and But I don't think that it is at all. You don't? Oh, no. I mean, what I think makes Gone with the Wind especially interesting, and what I do think makes it very different from Birth of a Nation, is that Birth of a Nation is firmly on the side of the South. And it's right. like, this is a noble war. They fought for a good cause. They lost. But even though they lost, they deserve the right to form their own horrible KKK militia. I mean, that is not what Gone with the Wind thinks. Gone with the Wind thinks from the beginning that this war is stupid and that the Southerners are stupid for fighting it, and it does not respect the war. I mean, listen to the way that the men talk about it. After we fired on the Yankee rascals at Fort Sumter, we've got to fight. There's no other way. Fight, that's right, fight. Let the Yankees be the one to ask for peace. The situation's very simple. The Yankees can't fight and we can. You're right. It won't even be a battle. That's what I think. They'll just turn and run every time. One Southerner can lick 20 Yankees. So I will finish him in one battle. Gentlemen can always fight better than rattle. Yes, gentlemen always fight better than rabble. And what does the captain of our troops say? Well, gentlemen, if Georgia fights, I go with her. But like my father, I hope that the Yankees will let us leave the Union in peace. But Ashley... But Ashley, they've insulted us. You can't mean you don't want war. Most of the miseries of the world were caused by wars. And when the wars were over, no one ever knew what they were about. Why, Ashley, if it wasn't... No, 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 gentlemen. Mr. Butler's been up north, I hear. Don't you agree with us, Mr. Butler? I think it's hard winning a war with words, gentlemen. What do you mean, sir? I mean, Mr. Hamilton, there's not a cannon factory in the whole South. What difference does that make, sir, to a gentleman? I'm afraid it's going to make a great deal of difference to a great many gentlemen, sir. Are you hinting, Mr. Butler, that the Yankees can lick us? No, I'm not hinting. I'm saying very plainly that the Yankees are better equipped than we. They've got factories, shipyards, coal mines, and a fleet to bottle up our harbors and starve us to death. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. Cotton, slaves, yes. and arrogance. I, yeah, and I, I think... Yes, that scene, 100%. But then you also have these scenes where I think there's a lot of irresponsibility. It's basically saying, like, the carpetbaggers are freed slaves who are now taking advantage of, you know, their owners and how bad that is. And, and never reconciles, like, how bad it was to own slaves. You know, there's and never— And also the poor white trash. This movie goes hard yes. on the slatteries. The slatteries, yes. like, get Scarlett O'Hara's mom killed by giving her flu. They, like, exhaust her. They take her away from her. She's never yeah. at home because she's trying to take care I of the know. slatteries. Then it's, they try to buy the house. <laughs> there is like, and I guess that talks about all that kind of I think Southern. Everybody sucks. Honestly, I think this movie thinks everybody sucks. I mean, I don't see how you can think this movie is pro South or thinks the South did the right thing. When you have this scene of all of these people getting the news of everybody who died and you have all of these people crying in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And then they put on the most ironic display of Dixie. The movie knows that this is fake bravado. Let's listen. Mm -hmm. 
cold-blooded. I, you know what? I think your read of it is smarter than what it's intending to be because I think it zooms in on a crying man playing the pipes. I just feel like that's. I think it's like the South is going to rise again, no matter what comes against us. We're going to get up, and that's how the movie ends. No, no matter what, I'm going to get him back. I'm never going to go hungry again. Scarlet I'm this, literally I'm this, I'm this. sides with the North, sells things to carpetbaggers. Scarlet doesn't give a shit about the South. But isn't it about the end of the day? She's like always wants to get back to Tara. Always wants to get back to that old life. She's not moving forward. She's just trying to recreate this past. And the movie is saying like, yeah, you can recreate the past. And you know what? At the end of the movie, she'll get back this guy too, because it's about, it's really about going back to square one. It's not about going forward. It's like, how do I work so hard to get to where I was comfortable in the beginning of the movie? That's what I think. But she's never going to be that innocent coquette again. She's a businesswoman now. Like her old Scarlet was always going to be taken care of. New Scarlet takes care of herself. And she knows Does she? Yeah, she does. I feel like. New Scarlet is like running the books at like her lumber company. New Scarlet is a businesswoman. Purely to get this dude. Because if she to get this dude really when when ashley dies that's when she finally has a realization like if she's so smart and with it wouldn't she be like what the fuck am i doing i have i have more to offer than this fucking blowhard over here this, this. she doesn't just own a lumber mill for ashley she does maybe invite him into the business to keep him closer but also there's like complicated feelings of duty this is just a complicated movie i think look we can all agree well you, you agree that this movie is racist right like unequivocally it's racist Right? Yes. Okay. That's all I think this movie is racist, and I think this movie upends racism. Think How it does, does it upend it? How does it upend it? I mean, Scarlet almost gets raped by a white man, and she is saved by Big Sam. That's one way. Right. And then the Ku Klux Klan go out and chat. I mean, and burn down the shantytown. That yeah. is a lot of men. It's a lot right. of white men. It's not. I'm not trying to let it off the hook at no, all, yeah. but I'm saying that this movie is not. It's and I'm not, not riding you. I'm like, yeah. racist. I think it is a. Southern point of view, I think, especially with the films that have come after it and like the way that you look at slavery, it's very whitewashed, right? It's like, well, but they all liked it. They all like fighting for the Confederacy. They all want to be in this house and raise Tara again. You know, it's like, like, was it Jamaica Kincaid said that thing, like that these people that worked for all the white people didn't, you know, they were better than the white people they worked for. And I think that there is that element to the movie. And that's, I think... On some level, I'm I am wrestling with that. And we're two white people talking about it. So what do we I know? know? I think what I really liked was the first half of this movie. I think where it gets a little bit more muddy for me is the second half. Uh, because where I was the most engaged was the first half. I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. I'm really behind this character. It's an interesting character. Kind of reminded me a little bit about all about Eve too. You know, it has like this duplicitousness with her. I think she's fantastic in the film. Which is why it makes sense that Betty Davis really wanted to play this part. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and then I think the second half falls into a more murky territory because it's less defined. Like there are some great sequences in it. The character is supposedly growing but I don't think she's ever learning anything. Like, I think where I'm frustrated is at the end of the day, I want her to be like, yes, you know what? I realize I don't need this man. I don't need this thing. I don't want any of this stuff. And then there's, I mean, we didn't even get into the rape section of it, the marital rape uh, in the middle of the movie, which is the most romanticized part of the fucking film, which is crazy to me. I think if the movie answered those questions, it would be a less powerful movie. It would be a more fake movie. Scarlett is not going to learn anything. Scarlett's going to live her whole life like this. I mean, I do want to get into the marital rape thing because I feel like eight million different ways about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, first, 
I'll just say the superficial one first. Don't yell at me. I do think it's beautifully shot. Yes. The way they like climb up into the stairs is just pitch darkness. It is dark up in those stairs. Mm -hmm. Look, by the way, that's an iconic scene in cinema. And I'm not trying to be the cancel culture man over here because I think there's two things at play. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of where my conflicted feelings okay, are. Okay, I feel many, thing, many things about this. Like, one, I don't know what this would add to know that Margaret Mitchell was married twice and her first husband, he was this guy, his name was Red Upshaw. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of the worst parts of Rhett Butler. He was a guy who beat her. He... Um, she went and tried to divorce him with a black eye. Wow. And she did finally leave him. And when she got remarried to her second husband, uh, John Marsh, who was the person who like helped her edit this book, who helped her get everything together, who was more of an Ashley Wilkes type of character, there's this story that, that when she was married, Red Opshaw bursts into their house, finds her in her dressing room, and something happens. And it's kind of heavily implied that her ex-husband raped her, came close to raping her, was interrupted by a housemaid. Like, something really bad happened, and then after that point, she always had a pistol by her bed. Mm. I say this as a backdrop because I think it's interesting to maybe view that scene as Margaret Mitchell, this woman who was like, I am not a victim. I'm going to do this. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to be the most popular author of all time, being like a Southern debutante exiled by society. That I think it is possible to see that scene as her working through what happened to her and making it okay, mm -hmm. you know, and, and and having Scarlett wake up the next morning and be fine. I think there's also a reading of it. You know, this is from the same decade as like, baby, it's cold outside. Do we want to get of into course. the baby, it's cold no, outside yeah, wars right. of yeah. like, were women allowed to even feel sexual, to be sexual? Did they have to have something like this happen in order to feel permitted to embrace it? I do think there's also this reading of Scarlett O'Hara as a person who's like, for all of her flirtation... She's very, very sexless. You know, she kind of reminds me of like a 14-year-old schoolgirl who like has crushes on boys, but doesn't really want to be kissed, doesn't really want to be touched that much. I like, thought that she wants to be kissed. And I think one of the parts of the relationship that I like is that she, that Rhett like keeps it from her. Like, you know, that's his like, that's his ace. Like, he's like, I'll kiss you when I want to kiss you. Like, you know, when you deserve it. I think that she also has kind of this like, childlike pinup type of mm -hmm. love. You know, it, she's more of like a person crushing on the Backstreet Boys than I think she is like a woman who wants sex. Right, so she's not I, using her sex like she's marrying people, she's manipulating them, but I, I would say she's manipulating them with her mind, less of her... She's playing into feminine stereotypes. I don't feel like it's it's a... Again, it's a fine line, but I agree with you. I, I, I don't disagree there. Yeah, and I mean, granted, like, none of these readings of, like, what might have gone into that scene on, like, Margaret Mitchell's point of view yes. and the Scarlett O'Hara point of view, if a woman watches that scene and thinks, like, it says rape is okay, that that woman isn't totally justified in being angry. Like, yes. that's also... By the way, we're, fair, in 19, this, we're in 1939, yeah. and this is a different time, and there's different things. And I think when we're talking about this list being representative of our culture, there are some very shocking things that are just there. Because she wakes up the next morning, and you and you kind of feel like she's like, I needed that. I needed to get fucking yeah. go to the bone zone with Rhett. And and, and Rhett has basically been like, you've never been to the bone zone before. You married yeah. like an idiot kid and you married well, an old man. Do you think that she even had sex with that? I mean, she didn't have sex with that first guy. Yeah. He got married, he I mean, went away. In the book, she has his baby like real briefly, okay. but it's like, nah. I mean, in the movie, like she could have definitely never had sex with him. Yeah. He like, goes to war a week Like later. immediately, they basically get married and he walks out the door. But here's what I'll say. And maybe hearing what you're talking about, 
Rhett Butler to me is everything that you're saying Scarlett O'Hara is. Because Rhett Butler to me is a conflicting character who I feel like has a much cleaner point of view who, when he makes that turn to go fight for the Confederacy, I'm like, wow, what? I buy that moment. Here's a guy who's always been out for himself and now he's making a, a, a choice. And, and he when, only does it when they're definitely losing. Right. And that's an, I think that that's really interesting, though, because he's basically could go to slaughter when he sees her with that little picture of Ashley. You feel this emotional like this bravado goes away. He's a man of bravado. I, I love him in this movie. I think he's so great. But you, you feel like he's vulnerable. You see him, you know, not being upset that he's not in the same room and his wife is giving birth uh, to their baby. I think when he tells her to go to the party like that second half of the film, you see this character for all of his complexities, yes, he maritally raped his wife and then comes up the next morning and is like, I am sorry. I'm sorry I did that. We should get a divorce. And I'm like, wow, that's a very progressive point of view for a character in this time. And I just felt like his character's arc, his character's growth, and the fact that he leaves the house, in many respects, this is a movie where the roles are flipped, gender swap. Like this is like the J-Lo movie where she's like, I got to get out of here, you know? And it's like, but it, but you're rooting for Rhett. I feel like I'm rooting for Rhett in this movie because I think that his character, while not plainly good and not plainly bad, it's a, it's a cleaner line for me. And I, I think that's why I responded to his character a little bit more. Yeah. Although I love Vivian Lee and I think she's fantastic. I'm not taking anything. You're allowed to hate her. You are totally allowed to hate but her. But aren't you allowed to hate? I mean, look, here's a guy who rapes his wife. He is fighting, literally fighting against his own people. He's like, I'm just running this game for money. Like, these are despicable things. You know, he he is a guy who's like, I don't get married. I like to just fuck. Like, you know, he's like My best friend is Belle Watling, the town prostitute. Yeah. Like, as like, like he's not presented in a way like you should be able to hate him. But I think because he's so in tune with his own uh, flaws and what he is. And I feel like I never really see that with Scarlet. I feel like Scarlet's like, ha, ha, grabbing on here. Let me grab over here now. Let me grab over here. Like it doesn't well, feel I like. I think that's who her character is. I think she right. lives very much in the moment. Tomorrow is another day. Right. And I think that you do see growth. In- do you think she gets him back? I mean, not counting the sequel novel, that's all bullshit. But I mean, like, if you just watch this movie, do you think that she gets him back? I think that I want her to. And then I think I look at myself and how much I want her to get him back. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? I I would want her to get him back because I feel like that's the only man who ever really loved her. Because he saw her for what she was. Yeah, and I he's mean, like, look, I he I know you're a piece of shit. And I'm also kind of a piece of shit. So let's get together and live a life where we can feel okay with being pieces of shit. Like, I mean, which is kind of a cool thing, but she ignores that and she's trying to get back to this idealized, oh, but this this guy that I pined after, you know, it's like that's a She always wants what she can't have. I'm right? not defending her, no, but no, that no, is yeah, a true thing that happens. Although you're make I pulled like so many clips of just their chemistry. Yeah. I'm just going to play like one, maybe two. Okay, great. I mean, all right. I, I'm all in on this. Okay. This is his big farewell when he leaves her with like Melanie, who's just given birth to a baby. She's got to ride through the South on her own as it's being invaded by like deserters from both sides of the war. And this is what he says. Oh, Red, please don't go. You can't leave me, please. I'll never forgive you. I'm not asking you to forgive me. I'll never understand or forgive myself. And if a bullet gets me, so help me, I'll laugh at myself for being an idiot. There's one thing I do know, and that is that I love you, Scarlett. In spite of you and me and the whole silly world going to pieces around us, I love you. Because we're alike, bad lots, both of us. Selfish and shrewd, 
but able to look things in the eyes and call them by their right names. Don't hold me like that. Call it. Look at me. I love you more than I've ever loved any woman. And I've waited longer for you than I've ever waited for any woman. Let me alone! Here's a soldier in the South who loves you, Scarlett. Wants to feel your arms around him. Wants to carry the memory of your kisses into battle with him. Never mind about loving me. You're a woman sending a soldier to his death with a beautiful memory. Scarlett, kiss me. Kiss me. That kiss, and then she yeah. slaps him. She slaps him every time they have an interaction. By the way, that like that like they hit that well so many times. Like, basically, they they have a scene. It's dramatic. You're a bastard. Like that. Like, that, that is like I mean that you don't even have to put together a, a compilation reel. It's every interaction. I think the thing that blows my mind in, in some of the research is like she did not really like him. I mean, you know, she said that his breath was just terrible. I guess it's the like urban legend that he would eat garlic before every kissing scene and he had fake teeth in because, oh, not because of anything, because he had fake teeth, but it's just like- Gable he, had horrible teeth. Like, I mean, he was like a real roughneck kid, like worked in oil wells and stuff. And what he did is like, from the time he was 16, he was always dating women who were like 15, 20 years older than him who were rich and would buy him nicer and nicer teeth. Wow. I will just say that. So based on all of that, first of all, I find him to be very sexy in this movie. I think he is uh, fantastically funny, dramatic and emotional. Uh, I think she does the same. But together to think about these two people not liking each other, it works. Whatever it is, it really works. And maybe she's just slapping that garlic out of his mouth. It's it's so impossible for you to imagine this movie without Gable, even though he did not want to do it. Well, I mean, that's and that's I mean, uh, Selznick basically couldn't see a world in which that doesn't happen because basically everyone who read the book was like, there's only one actor. There's one. I mean, I saw like these magazines, like who will play Rhett Butler? Uh, and, and everyone was like, it has to be him. Uh, it has to be him. I mean, he just had that like raw, like we're going to bone appeal. Yeah. He was just like, I Dangerous. see you. I know we live yeah. in a production code society. It doesn't matter. We're going to bone. And he says, damn, in the movie. I mean, you know, one of the most <laughs> famous lines. I and I think the urban myth is that it was the first movie to ever say the word uh, damn in a film. I mean, that was kind of why, like, Selznick would call it the American Bible. Because when he was writing back and forth with Will Hayes, he was like, it's like the Bible. There's cursing in the Bible. There's rape in the Bible. There's violence in the <laughs> Bible. There's, like, all sorts of things. It's our Bible. Let me have it. But, yeah, like, Gable said that, like, all of the pressure to make him play this role was, quote, I know now how a fly must react after being caught in a spider's web. Wow. And that he hated this because it was, quote, the first time the girl isn't sure she wants me from the minute she sets eyes on me. Uh, by the way, do you know how much he got paid? He worked uh, for 71 days. He got $120,000. And now, meanwhile, Vivian Lee worked for 125 days. And she got $25,000. Eh, some things never change. Some things <laughs> never change. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh. I think there's only maybe one scene in this movie where Vivian Lee is 100% absolutely honest with Rhett Butler. And I think this one scene is why we want them to get together, why we care so much despite everything. Because if there's one thing that Scarlett O'Hara is, is Scarlett O'Hara is just incredibly insincere. Like she knows what she wants, but mm-hmm. she's always very fake in how she says it. You know, she's very flirtatious, very flip. In fact, you know what? I'm just going to play like once even before this. Like this is when um, Scarlett first meets Melanie because everything Scarlett says in here is 100% thousand bazillion percent insincere and everything Melanie says is so sincere that you really hear the contrast. Melanie. Here's Scarlett. Scarlett. I'm so glad to see you again. Melanie Hamilton, what a surprise to run into you here. I hope you're going to stay with us a few days at least. I hope I shall stay longer enough for us to become real friends, Scarlett. I do so want us to be. We'll keep her here, won't we, Scarlett? Oh, we'll just have to make the biggest fuss over her, won't we, Ashley? And if there's anybody knows how to give a girl a good time, it's Ashley. Though I expect our good time seems terribly silly to you because you're so serious. Oh, Scarlett, you have so much life. I've always admired you so. I wish I could be more like you. You mustn't flatter me, Melanie, and say things you don't mean. Nobody could accuse Melanie of being insincere. Could they, my dear? Oh, well, then she's not like you, is she, Ashley? Ashley never means a word he says to any girl. I mean, Ashley never means a word he says, not so true. But Scarlett never means a word he says. She says, absolutely true, absolutely true. And that's what I love so much about Vivian Lee's performance is, like, she plays Scott O'Hara like this kind of possessed demon woman child. Do you know what I mean? To the nth degree, like... Well, that party scene is amazing. I mean, that party scene, that barbecue is just a great sequence and it shows you so much about her character because you, the audience, know exactly what she's doing and you're watching her machinations and how smooth they are. And and I think it culminates in the scene where she is with Ashley and she reveals herself in a very vulnerable way. And who's hearing it but Rhett Butler. And from that moment on, she can't, like he's figured her out. It was almost like here are the cheat sheet for you, and he knows. And so I feel like that's. I mean, to me, that's why I want to see them get together because he's the only one who's seen her the way she is and gets her. Yeah, I mean, the opening line of the book that kind of sets up this whole sequence of the bells and the blah 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 and how much bosom she can show. Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm, as the Tarleton twins were. Mm. And I mean. This Scarlet is beautiful. Like, they cast Vivian Lee, who is super beautiful. Yeah. But you see her work that charm. She doesn't ever just lean back on her beauty. You know, she makes, she puts on this, like, giggly, childish, manipulative, crazy performance, you know? Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, she plays someone who is not, I mean, this goes back to the sexuality. Like, she's playing into uh, female manipulation stereotypes, but it's not about her looks. It's about her brain and and how she controls all these people. Exactly. And I give Lee so much credit for that because Victor Fleming, he just kind of thought the the Scarlet character was just like a bitch, basically. He was like, she's a bitch. And when when Vivian Lee would be like, how do I play the scene? He was like, "Eh, just ham it up. 
And yeah. she was like, no. That's why she was like sneaking off and talking to Kukor because she's like, that is not who this woman is at all. <laughs> he also told her to stick the script up her Royal British ass. Yeah. So kind of fuck Victor Fleming, yeah. even though I think this film is great. But I mean, Vivian Lee herself, like she's in love with Laurence Olivier at this time, you know, the greatest actor in the world. Yeah. She's determined to try to impress him every weekend that she can. She's like getting away from set and like fucking Laurence Olivier for three days straight and then going back. And like, I mean, she lived this life where she got diagnosed with manic depression. She got tuberculosis. Yeah. And she, she really in hospitals the rest of her life. I mean, she really spiraled. I mean, or at least the research I did on her, like when she read like a bad review, right. About a performance that she did, I believe on stage with Laurence Olivier, right. They were going back and forth, switching parts, almost like true West. And there's just basically a line. And then this is just me going off of memory. Basically it was like, she brings him down. He's the worst actor because he's with her on stage. And that just probably just set her over the edge. I think that's... Yeah. I mean, this is a woman who like survived getting shock treatments, you know, which is why I think when you see her in Streetcar Named Desire, mm. I think these two performances just capture her so well. And that people who knew her say that in real life, she was a lot closer to her character in Streetcar Named Desire to Blanche Dubois being like beautiful and kind of broken Ely Kazan said she was the kind of actress who would crawl over broken glass if she thought it would help her performance. Wow. I mean, those performances are here in a way because David O. Selznick wasn't going to settle. Like, he gave right. up half of the profits of this movie to MGM for Clark Gable, knowing that it had to be Clark Gable, that it just right. couldn't be. Like, he knew. He tested, like, 1,400 girls. He did, like, 90 different screen tests trying to find Scarlett. And he just knew that everybody was wrong because he knew that he needed this. He just had to find it. I mean, I actually even pulled like another screen test of somebody right. else. This is Lana Turner. And you just hear the way that Lana Turner does. Yeah. I watched capture- a bunch of these screen yeah. tests on like a documentary and it was a fascinating. Like, they don't have anything. Yeah, they, they don't have anything. They, they make this character seem fraudulent in a way that Vivian Lee brings her life. Honestly, say you don't love me. No, I don't love you. That's a lie. All right, even if it is a lie. Do you think I can run away and leave Melanie and the baby? Break Melanie's heart? Well, you, you couldn't leave your father Oh, I could leave them. I'm sick of them, tired of them. I know you're sick and tired. That's why you're talking this way. But I'm going to help you. I won't always be so awkward. There's only one way you can help me. Take me away. There's nothing to keep us here. You know, so here's Selznick, who maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, and maybe I'm coming around to your point of view that, you know, he is going, I'm going to make this great no matter what. And because he's a producer, not a director, he can kind of fire the director. Like he fires George Cooker, who was working with him for uh, two years in pre-production. He fires him after three weeks. Um, Now, there is some speculation about why he fired Cooker. Do you know this whole thing? Mm, Tell me. Okay. So according to uh, Cooker's biographer, he knew about Clark Gable's past working as a hustler in Hollywood's gay circuit. And when... Basically, Gable was uncomfortable on set with him, and he was like, "You gotta, you gotta get him out of here." And Selznick was like, "Okay, gone." I don't know when Gable would have had time to do that. He always had rich women. Well, I mean, look, he's—I mean, who knows? Selznick basically claimed that he fired Cooker because Cooker was gay and would not be able to direct the the, uh, the straight love scenes effectively. It's. Blah. I mean, he directed like the opening sequence. I look. I'm not. I'm just all telling right, you what right, people right, say. Right. I'm not saying that. Like, we'll, we'll I'm not agreeing with Selznick. Yeah. I'm not. That's not a. That's not me going like that. Ah, <laughs> right? Am I right? Well, he's right. I'm just saying it's like. But it's interesting. That, like, I mean, it's it's you know, there's that going on behind the camera as well. It's I do want to see the movie where Clark Gable is a gay hustler in Hollywood. I, I want that movie. Let's let's make that somebody do that biopic. <laughs> I mean, okay, wait. 
this is like we got so off track. I was yeah, going to play you the scene where I think that they're honest with each other for the oh, first time. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. You want to hear it? Yeah, sure. Okay, this is right after they get married. They're on a boat headed down to New Orleans. Oh, I love this and scene. Scarlett has a nightmare. We're having another nightmare. Oh, Red. Red, I was so cold and hungry and, and so tired. I, I I, couldn't find it. I ran through the mist and I, I couldn't find it. Find what, honey? Oh, I don't know. I, I always dream the same dream and I never know. I, it seemed to be hidden in the mist. Darling. Oh, Red, do you think I'll ever dream that I found it and that, that I'm safe? Dreams don't work that way. But when you get used to being safe and warm, you'll stop dreaming that dream. And Scarlet, I'm going to see that you are safe. I mean, mm. oh, this is Scarlet like half awake saying what she really, really feels, which is that she just wants to feel safe. You know, she refuses to do it. Whenever anybody hurts her pride, whenever anybody dings her a little bit, she gives it back like double, you know? She right. gets so mad. She's so proud. She's so determined to never look weak. And this is her admitting that she wants a little bit of help and him saying, I want to give it to you. And they can never work it out. And it breaks my heart. But it's so weird that I would love to have seen the Wilkes character. And this is rewriting Margaret Mitchell. So it's not a problem with the movie. Like kind of spurn her. Not like I'm not interested in you. Like sort of like, yeah, I dated you. And you know what? You're just like this weird Southern girl, you have nothing to offer me and I'm not into you. And, you know, and instead of like this fantasy of him, like it would have been so interesting to see a more dynamic man as, uh, as Ashley Wilkes, I think uh, it just would have made, I think the drive of her, you know, she's so strong and she's so with it. That's why I think I'm so connected to get these two together, get, get Gable together with her. It's almost like watching your friend after a breakup. And it's like, Oh, it's been eight months. Come on, let's get over. Let's go. Let's go. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, that's how I feel about her. And maybe that's, I'm putting that on her unjustly. And what's interesting is like, Ashley really does kind of off and on later on. I mean, he kisses her a couple times. Yeah, but it looks like a bad kiss. I'm sure it is a bad kiss. You know, she, but she just lipped. wants that kiss. And like, yeah. he tells her that he loves her courage. And it's almost like he's telling her, she's hearing that he loves her, loves her, it loves her, loves her. It feels fatherly to me. It feels like, you know, I mean, it doesn't feel like sexual or romantic. Like every time you see Rhett, it's like, oh, he's going to like, they're going to go to the bone zone, man. Like, and you feel him is like, I'm kissing you on the lips. It's hard for me. I don't <laughs> like to kiss. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other characters? Obviously we we've, Touched a little bit on uh, Hattie McDaniel, who wins the Oscar. We talked about that. But I think that this is an interesting performance, too. Um, she is such a bold actor, and the character is, as we've talked about, this movie is complex. And so, Amy, I know that you got a chance to actually talk to somebody related to Hattie McDaniel. Yes, I got to talk to Kevin J. Goff. He is her great-grandnephew. And Hattie McDaniel had no kids, so... Her extended family has been really responsible for carrying on her legacy, writing books about her, keeping her in the public eye. And so I was really excited to talk to Kevin. Let's talk to him. Well, so Kevin, tell me a bit about Hattie's childhood sort of growing up as an artist. I mean, from what I've heard, like her father was a former slave, then he fought for the union, and then he became a performer? Yeah, you know, he um, was originally, I believe, on a plantation in Virginia. Then he ended up in Nashville. I, I think how the story goes with a and he was bought by a family called the McDaniels, which is where they got their name. Hattie, I think she was pretty much like myself. You know, I people said I came out of the womb performing. 
And I think she was the same way. Um, she, she's been quoted saying she just loved to perform. It, it was something she had to do. She had no choice. A, a great deal in the motivation of her wanting to perform, aside from the fact that she loved doing it, was that her father was struggling supporting the family because of the injuries he, he received during the Civil War. She saw his, his will, and I think that's what gave her the fight to go to Hollywood and, and fight to become part of Hollywood, even, even after, you know, I'm sure she got a, received a lot of no's and no, we're not interested. But she was just tenacious. She wouldn't give up. I mean, what what did it mean to be a black performer and try to, like, hustle and find work? I mean, I've heard stories that, you know, Hattie, when she was coming up, would sometimes literally have to perform in blackface and also sometimes in whiteface. You know, from what I understand, performers of, of that era, you know, there there was two sides. You know, there were white audiences and there were black audiences. And... And then there was the fact that, yeah, she did have to do those jobs like scrub floors and wash toilets and clean windows, you know, working for, for families, um, Caucasian families, um, whatever it took to survive. And, you know, I think that's one of the one of the things that stayed with her when she was auditioning for a lot of these movie roles, um, especially Gone with the Wind. She was familiar with the character in the sense that she she was a maid. She she did do those jobs. Yeah, she had this quote at the time. She said that she'd rather, quote, make $700 a week playing a maid than $7 a week being a maid. But it, even with that, I mean, she was this is this talented woman who ended up, I think, being a maid in something like 83 movies. And I wonder what that was like for her. Like when you watch her films, do you feel like was she able with all of her creative energy to try to make them individuals? Yeah, I, I think that's that's why she won the Oscar, because usually in a in a in a movie like that, if you have a a butler or a maid of color, it's usually yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and they don't really have really any dialogue. There's no interaction. There's no resistance. So the fact that she gave it these different layers and this feisty spirit and and just would go toe to toe with the characters, they were surprised at what they were capturing on film with her. Yeah, I mean, even just winning the role, like, this part was so competitive. I, uh, Margaret Mitchell, you know, I think she talked about in one of her diaries about, like, white women would show up with blackface and try to audition to play <laughs> Mammy. That, like, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt literally wrote a letter to the film saying, like, you should hire our personal maid. That's pretty interesting. And, you know, I, I think because Hattie had a, a friendship with Clark Gable already, and um, a number of people in Hollywood, being Crosby. But also was, was the fact that she showed up at the audition actually dressed for the part. You know, it's kind of like when someone walks in a room and you go, that's the one. I mean, from what I've read about the making of the film, it seems like before they started rolling, there was a big fight, you know, behind the scenes about, like, whether or not they were going to use the N-word in this script. And it was Hattie sort of involved in that? From my understanding, she was. Um, I've I've heard that she definitely was talking with Selznick and, and other people and saying that she, she would not use the N-word, that she refused to use it. And I know there was some um, pressure from, from the black community, the NAACP, about certain things that were in the script or that were in the book. So I, I think 
Selznick was doing his best best to balance all those different sources and those those different um, groups because um, he didn't he didn't want to boycott, which was one of the things that the black community and uh, people representing um, the NAACP and other groups they were like you know we'll boycott the film. Yeah. Clark Gable really was this kind of key person in her life. I mean, one of the stories I thought was really striking is when Hattie wasn't allowed to attend the Atlanta premiere, it was Clark Gable who threatened to boycott and not show up himself, right. being Clark Gable. Which is which is amazing. He didn't care what other people thought. He just went with what he believed in. So for him to step up, that is really, I think, a really incredible move on his part. And my understanding is she had to talk him into attending the premiere, she said, Clark, it's your film. You have to be there. You know, they had a great relationship. Whenever she would throw parties at her house, he would come, you know, pretty much every time. So let's talk about Oscar night. I mean, she's allowed to attend the Oscars, but she's forced to sit in the back. Do you think she's expecting to win? I don't think anyone expected her to win, because if you think about it, and this is just my my thought process, the fact that she wasn't allowed to go to the premiere so it makes you it makes you think, okay, white society is not taking her seriously. And when you think about that she was in the same category with Olivia de Havilland, I'm pretty sure Olivia de Havilland thought she was going to win. Yeah, I think I heard and some be- stories of Olivia de Havilland storming to the back of the theater. I don't know how true that is. I read a quote that, I mean, I've heard different variations, like when Hattie won, she was like, oh, there's no God, and how could this happen? And <laughs> You know, it's this big, mellow, dramatic moment. But then she she recanted and said, you know what? Why not Hattie? Good for her. Why not? But 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 for Hattie to win that, I mean, you know, Hattie goes up there to give her speech and she's in tears. I mean, and I'm sure that the tears were coming from multiple places. You know, her childhood, what she went through to get there, what she went through as a, as a black woman in, in that society, in that era. and and reaching the pinnacle of that industry, that's a lot to, to carry on your shoulders. Yeah, and she gets this standing ovation. I mean, this is a moment that feels like it should be a turning point. But really, what kind of what happened to her afterwards? Well, you know what? This, this is the thing that I always thought about. And you, if you look at her movies after Gone with the Wind, you'll see a scene. There's a white family at the dinner table or, you know, for breakfast or whatever. She's the maid and she's cooking and she's serving them. She's the only Oscar winner in the scene, but she has no real dialogue or very little dialogue. The other people in the scene who she's serving, they're not Oscar winners, but the movie, they're the main you know, characters. She had to be thinking, wow. But at the same time, she was living in that time. So maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe she was just happy just to be there in the moment. But, but you had to think, my career is going to go to a, a whole nother plateau. It's going to, it's just going to skyrocket and go on another level. But it just, it just was kind of like a flat line kind of a thing. It just, there were no huge peaks. Yeah. I mean, from everything I've heard, it seems like she gets really stuck, you know, that she's only getting offered more made parts. So she accepts them because she's not getting offered anything else. She keeps kind of saying to the public, like, what do you think I'm going to get? Like, am I going to get Clark Gable's girlfriend? Nobody's going to offer me that role. I thought about that, and that would have been great. I would have loved to see a movie, and Clark Gable probably would have did it, too. He probably would have. <laughs> you know, see, Clark Gable and Heather McDaniel and I love you, and I don't give a damn. And, you know, it would have just, 
It would have been it would have been amazing. <laughs> but it's sort of fascinating because then Hattie kind of, kind of becomes this like flashpoint figure that people seem to be arguing over her career. Like the NAACP really gets involved in this. And like the head of the NAACP, he's tried to start this letter uh, writing campaign demanding better roles for people like Hattie. But from everything I understand, like the producers of Hollywood, they kind of were in this position of thinking like, okay, made roles are out. People are angry about these made roles. We shouldn't have made roles because they are angering the NAACP. But this being like the post-war era for a lot of it, they associated the NAACP and like progressive groups with like communism and they were afraid to look communist. So they didn't want to do what the NAACP wanted either. So it turned out that there were sort of no roles being written for Hattie in the future. Yeah, I, I it, she definitely had a bittersweet career. I mean, for all the victories, there were these moments that, you know, the, the saying, you know, take a step forward, two steps back or something of that nature. It had to be frustrating. It had to be frustrating. And, and, you know, also the fact that she entertained troops during the war. I mean, she was a patriot. She, so she, she did everything she was supposed to do, but yet she still had to kind of try to balance her life with Hollywood versus her own community and try to figure that out. And I'm sure it was, it was, it was a strange tightrope. I was really surprised to see sometimes how personal her fight got with the NAACP. You know, I, she wrote, like, I remember a couple angry letters to people in Hollywood, to people in the government saying, like, exactly what you said. I went, I served the troops, I won an Oscar, and I haven't gotten a job in two years. And, you know, in sort of being in a position where she wound up taking jobs like Song of the South, which, which then also wound up getting picketed. Hattie had a quote, and it was something along the lines of, you know, there, there are two types. Some people fight a, a particular thing or industry on the inside. Some fight from the outside. And she, she chose to go in, into the inside, into the abyss, and take it on and hopefully open some doors. And I don't think there's any problem with that because not everybody is going to take on a situation the same way. That's what it, the situation was for her. She didn't really benefit to that degree. Um, from what she had to go through. And I think she knew she was biting the bullet. And that's what being a pioneer is in the first place. You're biting the bullet. You're doing something for the first time. It's not going to be easy. But you go into that knowing it. You you have a belief system and you take it on and you don't look back. You know, when Monique won the Oscar for Precious, she wore this white gardenia in her hair, just like Hattie did when she won the Oscar. And I'm just wondering... Mm -hmm. What was going through your head when you saw that? It was pride. It, I was, I was, you know, I mean, the hope is that any of us and whatever we do, we, we don't want to be an afterthought. We want to be acknowledged and remembered for our contribution. So when things like that happen in, in the example of Monique winning the Oscar, and it's, it's not in vain. Her Hattie's life is not in vain when I see that, which is why, I'm developing a documentary project and some other projects on the family, um, which is something that my father was working on before he passed away um, a few years ago. And I kind of picked up the baton, so to speak, you know, to be able to build a bridge from yesterday to today. You know, that's that's one of the things I think about, which would, would be an amazing thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you think about her in life, you think about her in death, you think about her missing Oscar. 
It's missing? You didn't know that? No. It's been missing for about 50 years. Never, It's never been seen. What? Yeah. Does anybody have any theories? There are some theories out there, um, but let me paint the picture for you. Now, when Hattie wasn't, this is the ironic part, when Hattie wasn't invited to, to the premiere for Going to Win in Atlanta, there was this black choir that was part of some of the musical acts because this whole premiere thing was like, a, I think it was a three-day celebration leading up to the premiere. And they had performers and all kind of things going on for those three days. And one of the uh, musical acts that was performing was a black choir. And the black choir had a young singer within that choir. His name was Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. Now, of course, this is um, 1939, I believe, leading, leading up to the Oscars in 1940. So you, you fast forward hmm, almost 30 years later. That same Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. is assassinated, 1968. Um, now, in Howard University, which is located in Washington, D.C., sits Hattie's Oscar which she donated, not donated, but which she left to the university in her will. So Martin Luther King gets assassinated. There are riots across the U.S., Chicago, um, D.C., which were two of the hardest hit places. And sometime after that, it could have been that year or the next, they don't know, but sometime after that, the Oscar just vanished. There were theories that it could be in somebody's basement. There were theories it was just burned during the riots. There were fires everywhere. Someone said I threw it into the Potomac, but it's never been it's never been seen again. It 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 goes to show you that here's this historic figure that did this historic thing, and even after her passing, there's still this semblance of disrespect. Well, Kevin, it's been so interesting talking to you. I really appreciate you taking a bit out of your Friday for us. Oh, no, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, no charge. Drinks on me. <laughs> Bye. Take right. care. A million thank yous to Kevin Jagoff for being here on this episode of Unspooled. I cannot wait to see his documentary about Hattie. I just want to learn everything about her that is humanly possible. Thank you again, Kevin, so, 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 so much. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That was awesome to hear. From the source. I mean, they're closest that we can get to the source. Yeah. And by the way, I want to play a little bit of Hattie McDaniel's Oscar speech. Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's really beautiful. And, you know, we've talked about this late night a lot, I think, in popular culture, how she's seated at the back of the hotel. She's not allowed to sit with her table. I mean, I've heard stories that, like, 
once the award started, they invited her up to her table and she kind of was able to sneak up. It seems a little bit vague. What is true is she won the award. Everybody in that room knew what it meant to give her the award, that award, and she got a standing ovation. And this is her speech. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. I mean, if you watch yeah. the video, you can see that she's wearing these white gardenias in her hair, mm-hmm. which if you remember when Monique won the award for Precious, when she won her Oscar, she wore white gardenias in her hair too. as like this very deliberate homage. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've, Monique has talked before that she always wanted to do a biopic of Hattie, and that is like one of the dream film projects I would love to see. Oh, that would be fantastic. I mean, this is a movie, look, Amy, that I have to say, I enjoyed it. I'm not, I want to, I like talking about it with you and I, and I like kind of breaking it apart and I'm frustrated by it at certain points. I enjoyed it. Um, and I also am conflicted by it. And well, let me ask you this question and, and let's take this movie out of it. All right. Just talk about it in general. When you have a movie that sometimes has irresponsible messaging. And I mean that in the sense of, we can just take a look at the slavery argument. Like, we treat them good and they want to fight. And, you know, you're, you're representing slavery. And I think we can both agree that it's very whitewashed the, the way that they treat their slave. There's no, you see no negative side to it. It's like, you know, um, you know, is it bad when a movie is that popular and promoting such a sanitized whitewash view of something that needs to be looked at in a deeper way. Like, like, cause now we all take that in and we go, well, that's what it was like. That's what it is. Cause that's culture has told us that. And does that become problematic? Because people look at it and they go, but no, but this it's when it's like, this is based in truth. This is a version of it. Does it hurt our society? Because people go, Oh, but it wasn't that bad. Oh, but they liked it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I think that is important. I think that is important. You know, kind of like what I was saying also with like this movie being like, maybe rape is bad. Right. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's like I the idea seeing... like that women want it. I mean, right. There's a, yeah. there's a, there's a reading of that scene. It's like, she, look, yes, he's drunk, but he knows that he just needs to fuck her. And then when she's done with that, she's going to be happy. Like, you know, it's like, it is that it's that culture too. You know, it's like, and that's what's happening in that moment. I mean, you can't, the, like, I'm not going to, like, you can, whether or not you want to call it marital rape or whatever, it's in that moment, it's like, I know better than you and take you, I'm going to fuck you and I don't care what you have to say because you, I know you need it and that's it. It's these things that set certain uh, stereotypes in motion because it's so popularized. I mean, I think that's all there. I think that is absolutely all there. And I think it's also all there that this is a movie about you know, what can the role of women be in a society that, like, tries to limit them at every turn? Like, Mm -hmm. I think this movie was as relevant for the people who were about to enter World War II as it was uh, saying that that it was about the Civil War. You know, this is a movie about, like, what do women do when their men go off? Right. You know, when this movie was starting to get popular in 39, there were women who were like, well, we have to go to the factories. We have to get jobs. We have to be in charge. We have to find a little bit of Scarlet in us. And well, I feel like that's that that also makes this movie 
have this passion and this relevance and this power. You know, it was the same way Margaret Mitchell herself, you know, she was a woman who survived through like World War One. She saw this huge change in like female roles where people suddenly like cut their hair and they right. also got jobs and they saw their loved ones. She's like 19 when I, the war happened. I know she's a teenager when the war happens and she sees like the men that she has crushes on leave. And what, what is the role in a woman's society when the rules all break? Well, you know, I, I want to just talk about one scene in particular too, which I think is a really powerful scene. We haven't really talked about it, but it's a scene when she shoots the intruder, uh, you know, on the stairwell. Like that's a pretty powerful scene. And I mean, it was violent. Like you see the blood on that guy's face and like, and you see her throughout the film, you know, exerting power in a lot of different ways. And I think when you look at her as a character, it is bold. I where, mean, my least favorite kind of female power is I shot a dude. Like I, I agree. I, I'm not saying that that's like the coolest thing, but it's like they're showing all different types of like her. I guess what I'm saying is like, I mean, she's not just marrying up to get another thing. Like she's just not using her wiles. She's, you know, she's helping in the hospital. She's, you know, she's shooting. Like, I think it's a very, and going back to the idea, like it's, a, it's a flip-flop of roles in a way. Like, I feel like she... It, yeah, it's I mean, a stereotypically she's the person who flip-flop. like grants Frank Kennedy her her sister's hand because right. her dad's too crazy to do it. I actually want to listen to that, that scene where she shoots the guy because I think it's really interesting for another reason. And that's like Melly's reaction. Scarlet, you killed him. I'm glad you killed him. chickens. Your big sister was trying to clean a revolver and it went off and nearly scared her to death. Oh, thank goodness. Have we got enough to frighten us? Tell Katie Scarlett she must be more careful. I mean, I love that scene because goody, goody Melanie mm-hmm. suddenly is capable of murder and lying when the situation calls for it. Right. You know, and that makes Melanie such an interesting character. I mean, to me, I think the group that comes off very bad in this film is actually white Southern men. Mm-hmm. You know, because when we look at the majority of the white Southern men in this movie, they are idiots who get themselves killed. They're men who go crazy when their wife dies because they can't stay strong like her dad. They're um, fools who are suckered into different marriages. They're these passive people like Ashley who never know what they want and it ruins everyone's life around them. I mean, the majority of them are these men who are sort of gung-ho for the war and it gets everybody killed. I don't think this movie celebrates the South as much as people think it does. And so I just hope that when people watch it this time, they watch it with that lens. I think you're extremely smart, Amy. And I think that you are making very salient points. And I, my only argument with you is that I think you've outsmarted this movie. I think that this movie is a little bit more simplistic than... I don't but think so. I Why think can't you give this movie credit? I think there are... It wrote the scene of the dummies being like, we got this. I think it makes them sympathetic. No, it doesn't. It's the dummy who... The first one to die is the dummy who's like, I'm going to fight you, Rip, for thinking we can't win this. Right. The movie doesn't like that. Dude, the movie thinks he's a doofus. I do agree that there... I, I don't disagree with you that Southern men... I mean, we don't really meet any Northern men, right? I mean, so we don't know how they view the North. I mean, we hear about the North as a specter, a goo... You know, they, we hear about the North in two ways. They're burning everything down. Sherman obviously is a douche. Um, uh, that's what they said in the movie. And uh, they use douche and damn in this movie. Uh, and, you know, and then I think you see a little bit of carpetbaggers, you know, like that's, but you don't really, you don't see anything else. So it's like, I would agree with you if there was parody. There's no parody. We're seeing the point of view of these, you know, 
you know, this woman bucking the trends and manipulating these people around her and the society and the bullshit that society is, which is all pomp and circumstance. Maybe the thing with Gone with the Wind is there is no right. There's only this right. beautiful, unholy mess. I, I, You know, I'll take it. What did people say when it came out? What did people say? This is a movie that came out, is a huge hit, breaks all the all the records. I mean, the premiere party was like a week. Uh, it was crazy. But yeah, what did, what did people think of the movie? They mostly really liked it. Honestly, I think the closest kind of reaction it had to it was the Titanic sort of reaction, mm-hmm. which is, A, this is pretty good. It kind of affected me. But also you you get that twinge of women and girls really, really like this picture. So I got to be a little too cool for it. Got you it. know, There's, I definitely read that into a lot of reviews like this one. I pulled this review from The Guardian. And The Guardian said, you know, the parts he liked about the movie are that there are action and spectacle and plenty and not too much sentiment, as though, like, sentiment and emotion are mm-hmm. a bad thing. Right, right, right. You, know, you see these trends happening over and over again, this kind of coding of, like, a film that is about a woman's life and a woman's love being sort of lesser. Whereas in this movie, he was like, if it was more about war, great. Right. But, ugh, come on. But anyway, he says, the one serious weakness about Gone with the Wind is that the story lacks the epic quality which alone could justify such a lavish outlay of time, talent, and production values. If the story had been cut short and tidied up, and if the personal drama had been made subservient to a cinematic treatment of the central theme, the collapse and devastation of the old South, then Gone with the Wind might have been a truly great film. Mm. But no, we must follow Scarlett O'Hara through two more hours of irrelevant marriages, births, deaths, and domestic squabbles that tell us little fresh about her simply because Margaret Mitchell wrote it that way. To which I want to say two things. One, this guy is like, oh, this author just happened to write it this way and not the way that I would have wanted right, it to be, right, which right. is sort of like... Come off it, dude. By the way, I'm guilty of that. I've already pitched a different way I would have written uh, <laughs> other characters. And two, I think this this review just takes it as fact that like the struggles of a woman living through the war are irrelevant when faced with like, oh, we could have just had a movie about the war. And I would say to that, I think we've seen that whenever we see a movie about the war, mm-hmm. you can't help but kind of romanticize the idea of war. But the truth of war is that people get hurt and people get killed. And I think this movie that takes place more in the margins of the war, you see the corpses and you don't see the glory of someone charging into battle. Right. And in a way, I think that's a more valuable contribution to the idea of a story about war than the battles. Interesting. No, I look, I think you're right. I think that if you try to break it down by a factual basis, you're like, well, this is not exactly how the reconstruction happened. I think it's all this sort of stuff. I think that this is a movie that, you know, like all great successful pieces of art, like very, like obscenely successful pieces of art, it often gets a critical reevaluation at certain points. And I think, you know, through eyes we've gone through, you know, in the seventies when this movie does, you know, get re-released or, you know, in that time, it people are looking at it going, is it that good? Is it, you know, it's a spectacle, it's assembly line entertainment, you know, four quadrant, no, it's not four quadrant, but I guess it is to a certain extent. Uh, if you saw it when you were a kid, but like, you know, it's like we're doing that and you have, you know, you have people looking at it in a different way, uh, you know, obviously with, you know, race and sexuality, not sexuality, but uh, through, you know, the eyes of, is this a feminist? Is this, you know, bad for feminism? There's a lot of, a lot of questions on the table. And I think I like your point of view. And I think that this is where you and I do see eye to eye, that embracing it as a mess is good. Now, does that mean it falls that high on the list? Because we're talking about a movie that is a mess and is complicated. You know what? Now I suddenly realize I've been using the word mess incorrectly. Okay. Because it's an emotional mess, but I don't think the film is a mess. I think I think the film knows that every beat in there is conflicting. 
I think it knows it. I think it knows that interiorly there is no logic to how we feel with this and how we wrestle with it and that we're all hypocrites to some level and push and pull. But I don't think the movie itself is a mess. I think it's immaculate. You don't think that there's anything that could be cut from it. You don't think that uh, that there's anything you would change. You think it is a a pretty uh, succinct that this movie needed to be three hours and 45 minutes. More than Ben Hur. Uh, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. I mean, yes, yes. Okay. I mean, yeah. Are there things I would change? Absolutely. Like, I, I think I, it's like I think the movie kind of does an unfair trick of when Reconstruction happens. It has Mammy being like, "Oh, I don't like seeing all these Northern Black people yeah, come down here." Like, it makes Mammy sort of make it okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it does. It does some, I think, nasty business in here. Where I think it's, it's messy, but I think it's honest. Um, so, do you think a movie that is this messy and this honest deserves to be in the top ten? On the AFI film list? Yes. Wow. I do. Mm. I do. I do. I think this movie just has hooks in us in a way that we still need to figure out. I don't think this movie is at all reconcilable. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important. Okay. Interesting. I will tell you where I'm at, which is I think it's very hard to say Gone with the Wind doesn't belong on the list, right? I also think it's hard to say Gone with the Wind doesn't belong in the top 10 on the list because it feels like sacrilege. You know what? You know, Gone with the Wind is a film that is is part of our like American culture, right? It is just, it's unequivocally, you can't get away from it. You can't hide from it. And we're not talking about a movie like uh, Birth of the Nation. We're not talking about, you know, like, which I think is unequivocally doesn't belong on the list. Um, but this is a movie... That does represent a time period. It does represent a point of view. I think it's a movie that also hits very similar themes or some similar themes to, you know, raising up the South, like the way that, I mean, I saw the general and I felt like the general has similar things. I don't know. I don't think it belongs in the top 10. That's what I'm going to say. I don't know where it belongs. I'm not going to give it a number right now. I don't think it belongs in the top 10. And I would say maybe it's hard. I feel like, uh, like I feel like subservient to the film. I would say within the top 50, 50. That was the quietest 50 I've yeah. ever heard. I know, because I don't even know if I feel like it should. Yeah, I, I think it probably in the, it's tricky. It's tricky. I don't know. I I reserve the right to revisit this and talk about it at another time because I don't believe that it belongs in the top 10. I don't believe it belongs in the top 10, but I don't know where I, I believe it belongs either. And if, and huh, huh, I'm conflicted. I'm very conflicted. This is the most conflicting movie we've done for me that I enjoyed. <laughs> Do you want to hear the trailer for Scarlet, the sequel from the 90s? Absolutely. This is uh, with my favorite Bond, Timothy Dalton. No, it's not my favorite Bond. Uh, and uh, who is uh, who's the actress in this? Uh, nobody. Okay. From Hallmark Home Entertainment comes the most anticipated sequel in history. The epic saga of the most beloved motion picture of all time continues. Welcome home, Red Honey. Welcome to Charleston, Scott. Hallmark Home Entertainment presents Scarlet. Oh, I'm so glad you've come home. The long-awaited sequel to Margaret Mitchell's classic, Gone with the Wind. There's no fable to it. It's home. From the producers of Lonesome Dove and Gulliver's Travels, Scarlet stars Joanne Wally Kilmer of Trial by Jury, Scandal, and Willow. I'm here to be with you. Well, I don't want you here, Scarlet. I no longer love you. 
and Timothy Dalton of The Living Daylights and License to Kill. Scarlet's never entirely gotten over her feelings for Ashley Rose. The other week she decided to do something about that. Return to the epic romance. You will never divorce you. Never. You'll be free to marry Ashley. Don't want Ashley. With America's most cherished heroine. I didn't dream you'd come. You're just as damn incorrigible as you ever were. Scarlet. I have been told that it um, stars Val Kilmer's wife. So I'm sorry, Val Kilmer. Well, no, no. You've been, first of all, that's not nobody. All right. Because she was in Willow and she was the best. Uh, (laughs) She's been in a lot of stuff. She was like a big, uh, a big star in the, in the 80s. Well, Uh, if you couldn't pick up the plot from that beautiful trailer, what happens is Mammy dies. Scarlett tries to use that as an excuse to get back together with Rhett by like faking a telegram from somebody else to pretend that Scarlett isn't going to be there. They somehow wind up like, on an island cave, I think. Oh, boy. I thought they go to Ireland. <clears throat> well, they do. Okay. But first, they wind up on an island cave. They have sex. She gets pregnant. He doesn't know. She goes to Ireland and pretends her husband is dead. And then she's, like, back to her roots in Ireland and, like, almost marries a lord. But then, like, Rhett gets engaged to somebody else. But then that person Blah. dies in childbirth. And then Blah. there's a revolution or something. Oh, and then they boy. get back together. Um, You know what? Not interested. Pass. Hard Pass. And we already know the Simpsons. Uh, the Simpsons definitely did it so many times you couldn't even pull that many. But which is the one that you pulled? I pulled one where the Simpsons rewrite their own ending. Oh, uh, this is from the episode "Old Man and the Sea Student." It's where they spend some time at the retirement home, Springfield Retirement Home, and they realize that the local channel that shows TV movies to seniors has re-edited "Gone with the Wind" to make them happier. Oh, Red, Red, oh, Red, where will I go? What will I do? Frankly, my dear, I love you. Let's remarry. Lovely ending. They cut out the best word. Didn't that movie used to have a war in it? Come on, yep, you've been warned. (laughs) Wow. That's the version you want to see. Happy ending and no war. Just no, cut it out, make it in half. No, I'm not saying that. They love each other, that. now they're in love. Oh, I no, love I it. Finally, oh, I'm Paul Shear, best I, movie ever. I felt, I felt like I finally had some respect for Red. I'm like, get the fuck out of there, man. Find somebody who's going to appreciate your fine clothes, your fine Parisian uh, boas and hats. Uh-huh. Is that person named Paul Shear? Yeah, I would take those hats. I'd give him his kiss and his fake teeth. All right, Amy, next week on the show, we are going from this flawed relationship to an even more flawed relationship next week. Uh, We're going back into the well of Mike Nichols to watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a movie I've never seen and so excited to see. All right. I'm excited. We we should just have drinks and yell at each other this whole episode. I would love it. We should just pour big old, take a lift here. The lift that we would not pay for Olivia de Havilland, who I'm like, <laughs> and by the way, if she didn't get here, we gave her an hour to get here from she her house. She lives in Paris. Oh, that's even worse. Uh, <laughs> she couldn't even call in, wow. Skype with us. Uh, anyway, um, Amy, what do you think would be a fun thing we could do with uh, our listeners? Well, I think if we're going to be drinking, they should come up with a cocktail. Ooh, I love that idea. But let's keep it quick. Just, you know, name your cocktail and uh, give us a little, you know, a quick hit of it. Because we don't want to get into like a jigger of that and a little bit of this and a glime garnish. We yeah, got to hear it Don't quick. take as long as it takes a cocktail maker to make a drink. Oh, my exactly. God. It's too much. Come too much. on. Come on. Pour me some scotch. All right. Here we go. Leave uh, your cocktail of choice for this film. 
uh, on the unspooled voicemail line. You can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. The movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? We will see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.